You are getting sleepy. Your CPAP mask is clamped tightly to your face. You will not toss and turn through the whooshing. You will not throw the mask. It's not working, Harold. People who struggle with CPAP have partners who struggle too. Luckily, now there's Inspire. No mask, no hose, just sleep. When I snap my fingers, you will remember to visit inspiresleep.com. Inspire is not for everyone. Talk to your doctor to see if it's right for you and review important safety information at inspiresleep.com. Hi, this is Marissa Meyer. And this is Delaney. And this is Sloan. And you're listening to the Prince Kai Fan Pod. Welcome to the Prince Kai Fan Pod. This is a Marissa Meyer Book Club podcast where Captain is King, Marissa is Queen, and I'm your host, Fanny Finger. This episode is brought to you by Rampy and Crew patron supporters. Thank you. Today is also brought to you by the wonderful technicians at CenturyLink and Cox, who worked very hard to make sure that I have internet. We love that. Please welcome back Cassie from Up Slippers and Spindles podcast. Hi, everybody. I'm so excited to be back. Yay. So we have to start with what are you reading? I am making my job on this podcast today more difficult because I am rereading the Lunar Chronicles. Like that is my current read and I'm like five chapters into Scarlet. So I had to like pull myself out of that part of the story and plop myself into this part of the story. But luckily I've read these books enough times that I can do that pretty easily. Good, good. If it's a book I'm not familiar with, like a series I've only read once or twice, that would, that would, I would struggle to do something like that. Yeah, exactly. But I've read the Lunar Chronicles so many times. Read it, listened to it. Yeah. I bought the Illumicrate (gasps) versions. They're coming in like June. They're coming in June. Um, But I can't, oh, I can't wait to have them. I don't know where they're going to go on my shelf because my fairy tale shelf is already very full. Mm-hmm. And I'm not have getting rid of the copies I already yet? own. I haven't because I'm opposed to that on a personal level. <laughs> I only do it when I run out of space and I don't know another solution. That's fair. My solution is buy more bookshelves. My husband okay. wishes that was not my solution, but that, no, that is generally my, my solution. solution to everything. Actually, the shelves he bought me when we moved into this house um, have ends. Like, it's a shelf, and then there's, like, an end on the other side. So I have to get a bunch of bookends now to hold them in place, Um, which are surprisingly expensive. I had no idea, but, like, a cute bookend that's not, like, you know, ugly and boring is, like, really expensive. They can be, for sure. I I just got, like, pretty new shelves in my office that are tall, um, but they were, like, five shelf bookshelves but like the bottom two shelves were really tall and I was like these do not need to be five like these could be six and so I actually went to my local hardware store and they have like freestanding shelves because those you can get like L brackets and do like a floating shelf in your house so I just bought the shelf and they cut it down to size for you and I was like can you make this this dimension and they said yes and so I turned my five shelf bookshelves into six shelf bookshelves you are so crafty I know I was very very pleased with myself I'm proud Um, of you but like I needed to do that because even having done it I've only got like one extra shelf of space to spare right now (laughs) 
Uh, and I have an entire other bookshelf on the other side of the room that's just for my retellings. Okay. And fairy tales. I don't um, have an entire shelf, like a whole. Well, I have four shelves, but not a whole book case or anything. Yeah. Yeah. My problem yeah. is I want to hang stuff on the walls too. So like my entire office can't just be bookshelves because yeah. I have a lot of art as well. I don't have an it's office. It's a struggle. It's a constant struggle, man. Yeah. I don't have an office and um, at home, all of my bookshelves are in the living room. So I have like as much space as I want, basically. Oh, that sounds lovely. I'm, I like having an office though. I don't want to give up my office. The last house had, um, my bookshelves were like in my office. So I had like an office and all my bookshelves were there. And when we moved in, Quentin was like, why do you have all your bookshelves in your office? Like put them in the living room where everybody can see them. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, I want people to come into my house and be like, damn, those people read a lot. And I was like, you don't read at all. <laughs> so it would he's just, just be taking like, credit for the reading you do. It would just be like, man, your wife reads a lot. But I'm fine with it because now all of my books are in our living room. And I well, have like a nook for my, my office. So it's just fine. I like it. The way that our house is laid out is my office, quote unquote, is the front room of our house. Okay. Um, and so like it's a big double doorway that doesn't have a door. And so you literally uh-huh. walk in the front door and you look to the right and that's and my office. office. So it is basically having it on display for everybody because you walk in and you turn your head and it's the first thing you see is my office with tons and tons of books. I should show you my office because it's only 10 feet away from where we are sitting right now. <laughs> you like how I said where we're sitting, like you're sitting next to right, me. Right, exactly. I'm there with you. So and this three is my, hours away. my office. It's just a shelf in the hallway. Nice. Like it's just a shelf that's built into the wall. So so when you walk into our house, like this is the front door and um, my office is right there. Oh, I love that. And then there's yeah. all your bookshelves. And there's all my bookshelves. So, but yeah, see, this I is, can... now that I'm just carrying my camera around, see, that's why I need a bookend. Yes, I see. I do understand now. Yeah, because otherwise those will just fall down. So now that we've yeah. had a tour of my living room, for no reason. Um... Let me see. I'm going to awkwardly <laughs> try and turn my... Oh, your curtains are so, so yeah. pretty. Thank you. So there's my shelves. And then that's my fairy tale shelf. I love it. This is it. great audio, by the way, for I know. all of our I listeners. I should do like a video. <laughs> I should do a video tour, especially because oh, at least we're not recording video, and and then no one will see that I'm in my old junior college T-shirt, so from like 14 years ago, and a robe with owls on it. That's the um, cutest robe. I love that thank so much. You. Thank you. It's so soft too, right? Um, Quentin bought it for me like four Christmases ago, maybe. I, you know what? We moved so much that I remember things based on what house we lived in. Mm-hmm. So we lived in the house on a net street when he bought me this. So it was a minimum of three years ago, a maximum of six. Okay. <laughs> Somewhere in I love owls part. though. <laughs> Um, there's a picture book that came out last year and I recommend it to everybody because it's like one of my favorite picture books that's ever been written. I love Um, it. And it, it won a call to cut honor, which I was super excited about. Um, but it's called night owl and it's K N I G H T. And it's about a little owl who wants to be a knight. 
Maybe and so he applies. It's so cute. He applies to night school, uh, <laughs> but he has he has trouble holding a sword because he's so small, and he has trouble mm-hmm. staying awake during the day. But he eventually passes, and he becomes a knight, and he gets put on the night watch. And oh my while God, I love all this night it's so play. cute. I love and, it. And while he's defending the castle one night, a dragon shows up and wants to eat him and all of his night friends. Um, but he convinces the dragon that it actually wants to be friends with them and have pizza instead. Aww. It's the most precious I really book in the entire world. Now. And you all need to go look it up. The pictures are the cutest thing ever. I love it. I love it. I'm going to look it up when we're done. I will. I have one like just saved because I I talk about this book to everybody all of the time. Yay! Um. Oh. He can't. He has trouble holding the sword. I love that cover. Yeah. No, it's that is phenomenal. That's the that's the cover of the book. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna look it up. I love it. I love this book. Go read it. I'm gonna recommend it for story time. Um, Please do. What am I currently reading? You guys, it's probably going to sound really vain. I'm reading book two in my trilogy because I just started writing book three in my trilogy. And so I'm going back and editing. And I'm probably going to be reading book one soon because a friend of mine literally gave me notes an hour ago. Um, Her name is Heather and she is my new favorite person because all of her notes were like, oh my God, I love this. Oh my God, I love this. How could you do this to the readers and stuff like that? And so feeling like very justified in my writing right now. (laughs) Everybody needs a reader like that. Right? Like absolutely 100%. Yeah. There were a couple of notes where she was like, is this a mystery or am I not understanding things? And then there was right, like, yeah. yeah, and I was like, it's a mystery. And she's like, oh, good. Okay. So then this is a clue. <laughs> I had somebody, I had somebody reading my novel. Well, Drew is great. Like Drew is always just over the moon positive, but like I had a, another friend who was reading it and she gave such great notes for like four or five chapters that were really thoughtful, really in depth and talking about what she liked. And then she just stopped. Like she just fell off reading it. And I'm like, please come back. But I also don't want to seem needy. So, like, I don't want to be like, go read my book. You know, it's a struggle. I I was really surprised because I only gave her the manuscript, like, four days ago. And it's 130,000 words. So I was expecting it to be a while. And I even told her, I was like, I can't believe you finished the whole thing. And she was like, well, just so you know, I haven't done anything else for four days. (laughs) She was like, my husband had pizza like two days in a row. I desperately need to do our laundry. I can't even remember if I showered. And I was like, oh, my God, are you kidding me right now? She's like, I literally I every time I had to stop reading for any little thing, I was genuinely frustrated. And I was just I felt so good. Yeah, that's what you want to hear, man. Yes. I have a feeling you would be, like, a really good critiquer. It it depends on what the person wants from me, you know? That's fair. Because, like, some people don't want that really, like, not, I'm not going to say harsh, but, like. I only want critiques if they're valid. Yeah. (laughs) If your critique is, like, oh, I hate characters like this. Well, that does, I can't do anything without it. Like, that's not helpful. That's not helpful. Or I don't like mysteries. Well, that that doesn't help me. I'm not going to change the whole book so that it's not a mystery. Exactly. Um, but if, like, your critique, okay. if your critique is like, this doesn't make sense. Or I think I know what you're going for, but you do not explain it. Or 
This mm-hmm. is a giant plot hole. Like that kind of stuff I find very important because then yes. I can fix it before somebody else reads it. Um, and I have stages. Like I don't let more than one person read it at a time. So I sent mm-hmm. it to my critique partner. I got all her feedback. I made the adjustments that I wanted to. Right. Because you don't have to change it. Just you cause don't somebody have says to something. change. Yeah, exactly. Which was kind of a hard lesson for me to learn. Oh, Yeah. It was like, oh, they don't like it. I need to go change that. And then be like, no, I'm going to stick to my guns on this point. Yep. Like, it's important to represent this way. Yep. But then now I gave it to Heather, and I'm going to take into consideration all her feedback before it goes to another person. And that's yeah. just how it's going to be until I feel like, I don't, I don't know, I'm ready to start querying it. But somehow writing the query letter is harder than writing the oh whole gosh. book. You're telling me. It's like summarize this book. I don't. I I don't know what happened. Can't can't do that. I've and never read this book in my to life. Give away too many spoilers. And it's like, well, then how do they know it's good? Right. Like, exactly. Uh, yeah. My so. brother recently went to a writers' conference, and he attended a panel where there were like five agents on the panel and you could submit the first page of your manuscript anonymously <gasps> and they would read them out loud Ooh. and the agents would put their hand up when they would stop reading. Like if this came across my desk, this is the point in your story where I would stop reading. And apparently of the like 10 that they read, there was only one that made it past the first page. Oh my gosh. And that's terrifying to me. That to me is kind of heartbreaking because I know I know these agents have limited time, but Mm -hmm. that is such a slap in the face. If you requested the first five pages of my book, give me those first five pages. Right. Read those first five pages. That feels like such a disservice to people. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's so like daunting to think about that. Give up after a page, not even halfway through a page, like that's just rough. Yeah, so and it's like, I so I have to spend... And then gets published, and I'm like, and nobody gave up on this first page, like... Right, exactly. It's like, I've read Twilight, you I know, need to get, like, I what? I to talk to your agent, who, who Clearly, represented yeah. you. <sighs> but yeah, that's all I'm doing right now, is because I'm, I'm doing a lot of editing and writing and editing, and I'm also working on my query letter, and um, I struggle sometimes because of my work schedule, I have a very weird work schedule. I basically work 11 hours Wednesday through Saturday, which should mean that I have Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday to read as much as I want. But what it actually means is that the only time I have to write is Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Mm -hmm. That's also the only time I have to record, edit, or do anything to prepare for the podcast. It's also the only time I have to spend with my dogs or my husband to clean my house, to do my laundry, to feed myself and go to the grocery store. So I actually spend most of that time trying to juggle all of those things. So I don't read as much as I was, but I th- I'm always like that when I'm writing. And then mm-hmm. when I'm like out of the writing funk, I read so much. Yeah. So I, I know I haven't read very much this year, but I also know that's going to change. So I'm not really fussed over it. That's fair. Real quick before we do Fan Art Friday, I mm-hmm. have a Heartless Musical update for everyone exciting they're gonna do another show in august of 2023 just a reminder it's in utah they haven't released tickets yet but they will um you can follow them on heartless the musical on instagram tiktok facebook and their website uh for more information and keep an eye on it for when they're going to do the tickets 
I told them, I said, I really want to like, can I just like ask you to set three aside? And it was like, but then I was like, no, that's not fair. So yeah, but I want three cause then I can take my sisters. Perfect. Four, if you want to go and sleep on my sister's couch. Um, August is going to be a non-viable travel month for me. Good word choice. Thank you. I love that. Non-viable. Yeah. Um, Where's my phone? <laughs> uh, because I'm actually pregnant right now. I know. No. Yeah. And I'm due in August. So I'm like, I've been given very clear instructions. Like, you're not allowed to travel the month Kathy, that you're due. I am. Oh my God. Yeah. I'm not I'm gonna so say you sorry. heard it here first because it's crying. it's like not I'm a so huge secret. For you. Thank you. I'm excited I too. Can't believe you're having a baby. And yeah. I don't even know about it. Yeah, my husband and I are expecting, and <sighs> it's. I'm so excited for you. Yeah. And you're gonna have That's a baby exciting. in August. Yep, end of August. <sighs> Congratulations. Oh, my God. Thank you. Oh, I need to make a blanket. <laughs> Not that I was going to do that. What? I send people blankets. <laughs> no, we're excited, but it's it's uh, overwhelming. I bet. But I'm excited for you. I'm, I can't believe you're having a baby. Oh, my God. <sighs> Sorry. I get really happy when there's, like, even tiny tendrils of happy news in the world. Hey, so. I'm happy to provide at least a little bit. <laughs> Provide as much as you feel like sharing, um, much as you have to to give. <laughs> okay, so speaking of happy, uh-huh. we have to talk about this fan art, you guys. Okay, so just so listeners know, from here until the near future, you will be getting fan art dumps of the scene we're talking about today, which is Thorn and Cress's first kiss. And oh I will God. tell you why. The amount, the amount of fan art there is for this scene is daunting and nearly unmanageable. So it's just going to be all over my Instagram for the foreseeable future. But here's, we're talking about two of them today. We'll probably talk about two of them next week and the week after that. And I don't know, just a lot, a lot, a lot. <laughs> um, This first one that you have in here <sighs> is exquisite. Right? This, so this is, is by Captain stunning. Hooks. Um, and for, for listeners, if you remember, Captain Hooks also is the one who did the, uh, she did the um, like manual version of the Rampion where she drew out the entire Rampion and highlighted like pieces and functions and detailed like mechanics of it. Uh, she also did a scene from Winter where the scene where Jason tells Winter that Cinder is Celine. It's just phenomenal. Just phenomenal. And this is just absolutely breathtaking. Like, this is the kind of picture that makes me wish I could draw. Oh my god. This is the kind of picture that makes me want a movie. Well, that too. Oh my god. <laughs> just the colors are so absolutely striking. The details are so phenomenal. Oh, I just love everything about it. And it's it's very indicative of what we're described to in this scene. She's on the table. The fern's touching her in the back. She's got her little butterfly outfit on. Like, 
I just everything about this scene like fills me with butterflies and I was already like on an adrenaline kick from you telling me you're having a baby so <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I know I have brownies in the kitchen this is just a really good afternoon you guys it's a good day for you <laughs> I, know. I love when Quentin gets on a brownie kick because he'll make a fresh batch of brownies like every two days for like a week sweet can I get my husband to be on a brownie kick <laughs> He every you know he does this and every it'll be you know in a couple of months it'll randomly be like a cheesecake one in the in the fall. You know how some people are like oh my god I love pumpkin spice. Uh huh. That's my husband. <laughs> so in I the can't... fall there's a lot of like pumpkin pie and those little like pumpkin rolls with the cream cheese in the middle and oh yeah donuts and delicious. Yeah. yeah. I can't give my husband too much flack because he does make dinner most nights. Okay. Um, just because of he works from home and I don't, and I'm not home until like five thirty or six, um, and so we're both too hungry if we wait until I get home to make dinner. So he typically makes dinner every night, and so like I can't give him too much crap for like not also making me brownies. I don't. We don't eat dinner together at all because Quentin gets home from work at four thirty, and he is an old man. He comes home from work and he eats. Period. I don't care if he gets off work at 3. I don't care if he gets off work at 4.30, 6 o'clock, whatever it is. And he walks in the door. That's when he's having dinner. Uh, and I don't get home from work until like 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. So I have dinner at 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. So we even like, we'll, we'll probably eat together today because we're both off today. But the rest of the week is just not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. But in this picture. <laughs> I love this picture. Yeah. <laughs> And I the love light-up bow tie, like, yeah, just the attention to detail. It's so illuminating, like... Because uh, you're first inclined, when you see that little bit of light between them, you're first inclined to be like, oh, that's like the moon shining through the window, nope. and then you remember they're on the moon. But also, if you look, it's it's like a glow from the the, yeah. the bow tie, like, you can yeah, see it. Yeah, it is from the bow tie. Yes, it's so... They're on the moon, I love that. I love it. Okay, so the next one. I really is, like the style of this one. This one is really fun. So this is from my guy, M-E-Y-G-I, on DeviantArt. And it's so fun. It's like the actual scene. So it's the actual moment when she's looking sad and forlorn. And he's like, you know what? I don't give a crap about talking. And that's when he picks her up and kisses her. And it's it's very cute. And I love his boots for some reason. I think his like weird combat boots with the suit is highly <laughs> with the amusing. Suit, it's very yeah. foreign. It's like <laughs> couldn't find amusing. shoes that fit. Who cares? I love yeah. that this is in like the comic, the paneled style. Mm-hmm. And I love that it doesn't include any words because... This moment in the chapter is him saying, I don't really want to talk either. And so, like, to yeah. take the words out of it and just let the images speak for themselves. And you've, again, got, like, the sitting on the table, like, all that kind of stuff. It's just lovely. It is. And I love the little, um, what do you call the picture in the picture? The little tiny one. I don't know. I don't know what you would call that. Adorable, I guess. Yeah, super cute, but... I love the close-up of it with his eyes closed and her eyes not to show where they are in the moment. I just think that's so sweet. And slowly losing her antenna. Yeah. (laughs) 
<sighs> Anyways, now that we've swooned, big yes. thank you to both those artists for letting me share. You can check out their artwork and more on their Instagram, DeviantArt, and on the Prince Kai Fan Pod website. Last time, I almost said last week, but it's actually been a while. Uh, Patreon members voted for chapter titles. Chapter 67 is Whatever It Takes by Imagine Dragons. Chapter 68 is Devil Doesn't Bargain by Alec Benjamin. And chapter 69 is Count on Me by Bruno Mars. And just a reminder, there are Spotify playlists of all these songs. I don't just randomly go, this song is going to be the title. So again, you can go to the Prince Kai Fan Pod website and there's a page and there's a Spotify playlist for every single book where the songs are in a playlist. So yeah, I had somebody message me and they were like, why do you even bother? And I was like, there's a playlist. And they were like, what? That's the whole point. (laughs) (laughs) So today we're going to do chapters 70, 71, and 72. The reason we're doing all three of them together is because they all need to be done together. Yes, you can't split these up. That That would would just be be mean. Yeah, no. Okay, so last week we left off with Kai appointing Torin as his successor and the reveal that he has bombs in place only if he's left with no other option. Um, a very, to me, a very big like World War II connection. Uh, Cress and Thorn are sneaking into the palace for the dance. Jason and Cinder were stealing antidotes and Iko, um, like played, uh, played decoy so they could get away. So that's where we left off. Now we are in Cress's perspective and we're about to have a good day, basically. Doesn't start off that way, but good end of the day. So Cress and Thorn are sneaking into the palace and I love immediately that they're walking, they're leaving a war and walking into a palace where everyone has no idea what's going on. It's like the definition of luxury problems. So, I have been caught up in the um, sudden Hunger Games resurgence that's happening on TikTok right now. See, I don't have TikTok, so I have no idea. Tell me about this. Oh, Hunger Games is is experiencing a renaissance. Um, And it's because the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes movie is coming out soon. And so, I think as part of the marketing, Netflix has picked up the Hunger Games movies, but it's only having them for a month. And so people are like, oh, we got to watch this. And so they're watching it. And so people are like talking about the movies. That makes sense because Taylor Swift just released her re-recorded version of her songs that were in Mm -hmm. that movie. Yeah. And so things are adding, pieces are coming together. You know, in this resurgence of Hunger Games discussion. And so I rewatched all the movies and there is such a connection in my brain for some reason, between these two stories, between the mm-hmm. Hunger Games series and the Lunar Chronicles. They're both that dystopia kind of deal, especially when you think about the moon um, in the Lunar Chronicles and comparing the people of the moon to the people of the capital in the Hunger Games. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of kind of similarity there. And so I'm getting that same vibe. You talked about like the people here who um, have no idea what's going on right. and they're just dressed up at their fancy party, you know, to celebrate this. And it's very reminiscent of the people in the Capitol, like not understanding what's going on outside of their own little bubble and the over the top, like visuals and costumes and, and first Hunger the Games. first Hunger Games was published in 2008. 
I believe. So Hunger Games was first because the yeah. first Cinder came out in 2012. Like, and they're different enough stories. I'm not going to say anybody, you know, ripped well, off anybody. Like, absolutely not. Well, the first time not, someone but... has done that to make connect. I would say, yeah. like, the oldest one I can think of is probably Wizard of Oz. But that's only if you've actually read the books because mm-hmm. the movie, I don't think, was as political. But that's that's another story. But, yeah, I, I think I would completely agree with you. And I, I think um, one of the things that I always found amusing or, or maybe not amusing, but insightful or interesting. Because I remember the first time I read this and Hunger Games and being like, people do not act like that. People do not dress like that. No, somebody posted a picture the other day of one of those K girls, the, mm-hmm. the Kardashian girls, and she had a lion on her chest. Yeah. And then there was like a series of all these other pictures. And then it was like, remember how we thought it was crazy how people dressed in the Hunger Games? And I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. So it is, it's not as, it's not as crazy as I thought it was, I guess. It's definitely a possibility that I find kind of disturbing. And no judgment if you're listening to this and you're like, I want a lion on my chest. Like, whatever, you do you, boo-boo. But some of the, (laughs) some of the, like, costuming that we hear about in this book, I'm just, I, I just, my only thought is why? Like, with the fish in the shoe. I, what purpose does that serve? It's cool looking. It is cool looking. Possibly. It's not real, so we can't really tell. Yeah. But I was, you know, reading about Cress's butterfly dress and remembering that Effie, in the second yeah. movie, has that butterfly dress that she wears. Yeah, Monarch. And I found out, again, from TikTok, um that apparently like several of Effie's costumes in the movies were actually like Alexander McQueen gowns from a fashion show that he did. Like they weren't costumes made for the movie. They were oh my clothes that had been designed by a big name designer and used then for the movie. That is so insane. Including the butterfly dress. The things I don't know about the world could fill so many books. (laughs) Okay, so I think that um, we've talked enough about the clothing. Um, I kind of like the the little insight we get into this, that there was a time when Cress was desperate to get into this palace. And now walking in there, she kind of feels trapped. Um. And maybe not in the same way, but I have experienced that where I'm like, where I remember there was a time when all I wanted was something, you know, A, B, C, or D. Um, And you kind of get over that feeling and you don't realize when or how until you're met with it again. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it absolutely does. And my favorite part of, of this moment is the way that Thorne immediately knows and understands exactly what's going on in her head. Like, he is the one who kind of comes over to her and is like, hey, you know, he can tell she's kind of panicking a little bit and, you know, feeling this anxiety. And he knows exactly what to say to help dispel it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I like the, we haven't seen her anxiety in a little while. I like that we get a call back to that fantasy. To me, when she does these fantasies, it's a coping mechanism. Absolutely. 
and we haven't seen her do one in a while because she hasn't needed to do one. She's been relatively safe and happy and well-guarded and she's putting herself back in that position. And I think that she, the, that Marissa is telling us the anxiety is back by giving us, look, she's using her coping mechanism again and she hasn't used it in a while. Mm-hmm. But I also love as a point of kind of growth for their relationship is that yes, Thorn is, is helping her through this anxiety, but not in like this super overprotective, I need to shelter her way. It's very much like guiding her through her own coping. And he's still, he's laughing with her. He's teasing her. He's like having this banter back and forth, which I think is such a, an important growth from when they were in the desert in Crest mm -hmm. and he needed to like protect her and kind of guide her through every single step because she didn't have the knowledge to do that herself. I also think that it's important to acknowledge that while Thorne is there and he's helping her and guiding her, it's actually kind of nice that she's still like carrying a lot of the weight herself. I feel like absolutely so she in, is. Yeah. I feel like so often in books and movies, it's like they did this because of their boyfriend or because of the prince or uh, one of my favorite book series did that where the girl had like a severe eating disorder and her boyfriend was like, you shouldn't have an eating disorder. And she was like perfectly cured within two chapters just because her boyfriend said, don't have an eating disorder. And it's well, always don't you know that's me. all it takes? Right. Like, it's always bothered me. And it, I don't like this concept that, like, you should get over something really fast. Or you should, you know, move on from your anxiety. You're out of the satellite. Why wouldn't you feel this way anymore? Or whatever. And I love that Thorne is having that patience with her. Without readers being like, Thorne's doing everything for her. And that's, I think, an important parallel to draw as well from when they were in the desert. Because you have to remember, when they were in the desert, they were on Earth, which she had no frame of reference for. Like, she literally didn't know how this worked because right. she'd spent her whole life in a satellite. So she did need somebody like Thorne to say, hey, this is why dehydration is a problem and this is how we're combating it. But here, they're on the moon. They're in Cress's world like obviously this part of the moon is not Cress's world but like these people and this culture and this society is something that she knows way more about than Thorne does mm -hmm. and we see that come into play over and over again in this scene as well as he continues to be tricked by the glamours and she has to keep reminding him like it's not real you're not seeing what you think you're seeing and so you get the strengths of both and I think that that's really an important dynamic for their relationship it provides a nice balance between the two of them. And it shows the reader going forward what kind of dynamic they would have, you know, if they had a future together. Um, one thing I do want to talk about is that glamour. Because I do remember reading these books for the first time and being like, what must it be like to see someone and not know what they really look like? And makeup today has been modernized and... Um, I don't know, improved and expanded so much that that's not really the case anymore. I don't know what anybody looks like. That's fair. I think that what still trips up my brain is like height differences. That like your glamour can make somebody think that you're like taller yeah. than you are. Yeah. And not just like perceive you that way, but like be physically interacting with you and, and have like a completely, and, but yeah. like you're actually shorter or like, the other way around, and I can't quite get my brain to wrap around that. 
And it's like, I know that there's going to be a different physical reality from the reality that you're experiencing in your head when you're caught up in that glamour. And but suspension still, of like, disbelief, right? Yeah, but, yeah, oh, of course. But I mean, but you know, some of it too is like, how much of it do you assume is fake if you don't know it's fake? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, if you don't know that it's fake, would you think like, well, maybe they're shorter, maybe they're taller, maybe they're thinner, maybe they have a different nose, maybe they have, you know, different hair or something. What we would assume their natural characteristics are would just be a projection of what we feel, right? Like maybe we've always been a little insecure about our hair or our height. So when we look at someone who's glamored, we're like, oh, they probably messed with their hair and their height, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. even being someone like Thorne, I mean, mostly he's, he's you know, it looks like what he's saying is women. But even someone like Thorne, who's pretty damn shallow, it it would probably the most shallow person in this that we've seen in in our little quartet, and that's including Iko. I think that he looks at this scenario in a very different way because even once he's told like that it's not real, he still is like, well, but I see it as real, so right, yeah, you know, <sighs> yeah. Should we talk about the statue of Artemis? I love the inclusion of the Statue of Artemis and the fact that the city is called Artemisia, like that it's named. Of course. And it talks about like some ancient earth goddess, ancient moon goddess. And I just I love, love that. that it kind of, it creeps in. Cause I mean, if you think about it, like if you think about our society today, mm-hmm. the number of ways that our culture, like that Western culture is influenced by greek and roman mythology in ways Mm -hmm. that most like most people aren't even aware of that aren't the obvious ways and i think that that's absolutely fascinating there's like a post that i remember talking about um the the rockets for like the space shuttle are such a height because they had to be built so that they could go under the overpasses on the highways and they had to fit on like the truck, but the height of the overpasses or like the width of the truck is because of this and because of this and because of this and tracing it all the way back to the like road ruts in ancient Rome, which were the width of two horses next to each other. And like just this cascade of history influencing the future in ways that you're not even aware of. So I love that this is included, this goddess of Artemis. I really want to see that spider web. Yeah. The, the, I want to see the like middle where it's like the road in Rome and to rockets. Right. Yeah, like to, I really want to see that. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Um. I also think that it's important to acknowledge the fact that she's ancient in a way that's sort of lost Mm -hmm. as if to imply that we no longer study or acknowledge or even that the average person wouldn't know maybe not who she is. Right. But they've probably heard the name because like I could go ask Quentin right now. Do you know who the goddess of Artemis is? He's Mm going to be like, nah, is she Greek? Right. Because we know a little bit. But would we get to a point in our future where we don't even have that? That's like mind-boggling yeah. to me. Yeah, because I mean, at some point you have to you have to skim things down, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. So I also want to talk about how no one knows she's a shell. Um, two things I want to know. Can earthens be shells? Is it strictly like a moon mutation or could earthens or, or could there be like a, a, a similar mutation where earthens are shells? I think there possibly could be. Like, the, the lunar shell is a lack of the lunar gift, mm -hmm. but also then they can't be influenced by it. And mm -hmm. kind of my interpretation, because I do think it's kind of strange that nobody picks up on the fact that she's a shell here, but right. my interpretation is that they could notice that she was a shell if they, like, focused in on her. Hmm. But if they're yes. just like, here's my glamour and I'm expecting it to impact everybody around me... They're not going to be focused on, like, is this one person reacting to that glamour or not? But if they specifically looked at her and said, I'm going to try and manipulate her specifically, then they'd find, oh, I can't. Oh, she's a shell. Well, isn't there something about their the bioelectricity that shells give off that tells you they're a shell? Because they said you can tell from birth if, it's, yeah, if you it's, can... a baby's a shell. Yes, but I think it's that kind of, like, active focusing on the person. Okay. Is my interpretation of it. And because, so, like, in a big room like this. Because you can't sense them, right? Like, yeah. you can't sense you can't, their bioelectricity. You can't manipulate their bioelectricity. So you can't, okay. like... But I think you could sense the lack of it. Okay, okay. But I don't think it's, like, a glaring thing. Right, because you're like, in I don't think space. Yeah. I don't think when Cress okay. walks in the room, everybody goes, Oh my gosh, she's a shell. But right. I think it's if they said, oh, there's a person there and I'm going to try and manipulate her to go, you know, do something for me. Then they would be like, oh, I can't because she doesn't have the bioelectricity. She must be a shell. But I think it has to be like more of an active focus for it to be perceived. I think so, too, because I, I don't think that I think like what you're what you said about the amount of people and having to focus on one person would be a big proponent because I mean, I don't know how many people are there, but like I went to dances yeah. and, and proms and stuff, and this has got to be a ridiculously high magnitude of that. So yeah. Um, well, and again, just having reread Cinder um, <laughs> in Cinder, when Lavana notices Cinder in the crowd and thinks that she's a shell. The reason she picks up on that is because she brainwashes everybody else yeah. to like bow, but Cinder doesn't know what's happening. And so it's the fact that Cinder doesn't do what everybody's doing that draws Lavana's attention. It's not a sensing of, oh, there's somebody here who doesn't fit in. It's, I made everybody bow, except there's this one person who's not. Wow. That's a good connection. See, it's good that you just read Cinder. See, exactly. Yeah. There's... You're drawing all these connections. I haven't read Cinder in years. <laughs> <laughs> Because we've been doing all these other books on the podcast. You've had a little bit else to focus on, you know? Yeah, I've had some things going on. I don't know. I don't even know. The podcast is almost four years old, which is mind-boggling to me because I don't feel like it's been that long. And then I'm like, well, 160-some episodes would take a few years. It's true. <laughs> so I want to talk about... Cress telling him, try to keep in mind that they can make themselves look however they want. No one in this palace is as beautiful as you think they are. 
I think yeah. that's beautiful. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, because then he like turns around and he says, I'm fairly certain there's at least one exception to that rule. And then and we she all doesn't get it. She doesn't yeah, she, get it. She goes, yeah, thaumaturges. And he, la- yeah, he laughed and dropped his arm, though she wasn't sure what was funny. It's like, girlfriend, for as, <laughs> like, I love Cress deeply, but for mm-hmm. as deep in it as she is and how badly she wants him to return her feelings, she is so oblivious to the fact that Part he does. Part of that is her innocence, right? The lack it of, is. of experience that she's had and exposure and stuff and... I think that is why there's so many people that are like, oh, are they an even match? No, but that doesn't mean they're a bad match. Right. And I think what's important, too, is that Thorne is so performative in his attraction because it's Mm -hmm. become part of the personality people expect him to have Mm -hmm. that Cress is expecting that if he was attracted to her, he would show it the same way that he performs it toward other people. When in reality... The fact that he feels something for her that's real means he can't deliver that performative action toward her. And that's what she's missing. Like, that's kind See, of the disconnect. this is why you need to be on more episodes, because that was brilliant. I do try. And we'll talk about that more when we get to that chapter. But, yeah, very well said. Thank you. You should teach a class. So, <laughs> <laughs> um... I want to talk about Thorne asking about the companion rooms because oh, gross. Thorn. There's makeout rooms at this party. How like slutty are they on the moon? Sorry, that was probably rude of me to say. How well, we are told are they? <laughs> we are told frequently that yeah, lunars don't. They view monogamy as a very outdated concept. Yeah. And so they are very, I'm going to phrase it as very more like sexually liberated, I guess. There you go. See, not not to say me. that monogamy isn't being sexually liberated, like making that right. choice for you, but they don't have the same kind of like, I don't know, modesty, I guess, around this idea. Mm-hmm. It's not a, a kind of value or worth thing for them. The way that it kind of is ingrained in our culture. Well, what about we the attach... modesty of it? Of, like, doing those things in private and not, like, going to a party, hooking up, and then continuing to, like, waltz around. Right. Like, but it's just, that it's to a me very... feels like a very college thing. It, I, go to a party like, I agree up. with you, for sure. But I yeah. think that, um, I think it's a really good, like, just a little subtle bit of world building there. Mm-hmm. To mention that this is a thing. And nobody on Luna is going to bat an eye at it. Right. Whereas the Earthens are going to be like, what? You do what? You know, that kind of thing. Because they're very I mean, I did. (laughs) Right, yeah. I was like, ew. (laughs) (laughs) So a man and a woman approach, and they're both very flirty with Thorne. And the man is glamoured to look like a lady. So Thorne thinks that they are... uh, women flirting with him. Now I want to talk about Thorne says we're on a covert mission. Why? Why say that? Is he just like so confident that he's like if I say it it's the last thing they'll expect? Like I mean, I think there's some truth to that, honestly. Like sometimes when you 
when you need someone to believe a lie, you can kind of tell the truth, but in such a way that people will like laugh it off, like, oh, ha ha, what a funny jab. And I think that's kind of what he's doing here. Is like, yes, they are on a covert mission, but if he comes out and says, we're on a covert mission, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, they're going to be like, oh, ha, 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 you know, and think not think that it like, is the truth. I think it might be similar to the concept of, like, hiding something in plain sight. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I, I was watching a TV show the other day, and there was a very important rock. It was super important. It looked like, and it was a, it was called a moonstone, and it was shaped like a, um, like an oval disc, and it looked like soap. It looked like a bar of soap. So what they did was they went and they bought like fifty bars of soaps, and they filled like a, a vase in their bathroom, and they put the soaps on the, on the counter, and they just tossed the stone in there. And it stayed hidden because it looked like any other piece of soap. Um, mm-hmm. So I wonder if it's kind of a similar concept of like if you're if you're not looking for it, even though it's right in front of your face, you won't see it. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of what he's doing here. Yeah, but the chapter ends with one of these beautiful girls walking up to Thorn and giving him a big old kiss. Yup. Gotta love when Marissa ends a chapter like that, don't we? Yup. So let's talk about our song choices for this one. So continuing my tradition of only picking song titles from musicals. um, This one was actually pretty easy. Sometimes I have to like search for for some, but this one I was like, nope, there's a perfect, perfect one. Um, There's a musical called Come From Away and there's a song in it called Costume Party. Nice. And that one, I don't even have to explain lyrics to you. It's just like, there you go. Costume party. It's (laughs) self-explanatory. I love it. I went back in my brain catalog and picked a JT song. Probably my husband's favorite, like, pop singer, if he actually cared about pop music. So when we were on our little vacation, we had uh, two nine-hour drives to Washington and two nine hour drives back from Washington. So there was a lot of podcasting, comedy shows and music. And there was one music where we were like, let's go back. And we were listening to like Hanson Brothers and Backstreet Boys. And then, you know, that playlist ended and my Apple Music was like, you liked NSYNC. Do you want to listen to a Justin Timberlake playlist? And we were like, yeah, let's go back. And it played Suit and Tie. And I just thought that's kind of perfect, isn't it? So Suit and Tie is a song about getting all dressed up and feeling fly. That's it. That's the whole song. But I I do like it because I like the idea of this song playing like while they're walking up the stairs and into the party. Right. Mm -hmm. So what's the chorus again? Um, As long as I've gotten my my suit and tie, I'm going to leave it all on the floor tonight. And you got fixed up to the nines. Let me show you a few things. I love it. So I, I know that, like, I know that Thorne and Chris aren't technically, like, in dating right now. But I do like that idea that they're going to a party and they're dressed up and they're going to have a good time. And that this could be, like, a date night for them if it weren't for, like, you know, war. <laughs> If it weren't for all the magical manipulation. 
and war that that and part's war and espionage <laughs> yeah all that um but patreon members will get a chance to vote on those songs on uh on the patreon website let's talk about chapter quotes yeah so i i picked kind of one that i wasn't expecting to pick when i first like was looking through this chapter and it's right when the first couple come up and start talking to them and they say you two seem lost and the line is thorn spun around tucking crest behind him as he did and this one really stuck out to me because it's such a like instinctive protective kind of instinct that he has in this moment they're suddenly approached by lunars they weren't expecting it and he knows that if they find out what crest is she will be in danger. And so he immediately turns, puts himself between her and the threat, and then, like, really turns up his flirty charm with these two. And I think it's to deflect attention away from her. And that's kind of how I interpreted this moment. And it's like, it's again, it goes back to that performative um, kind of flirtation that he does, but in this instance, I think there's like a deeper meaning behind it that Crest doesn't see because she's so focused on, oh, of course, he's flirting with other people and not me and doesn't see that he's doing this so that they don't pick up on the fact that she's a shell and therefore put her in danger. I think there's also something really beautiful about the reflexiveness of it. It's a it's a gesture without thought. Exactly. It's, immedi- yeah. it's immediately like, oh, I got to protect her. And he tucks her. Also, my husband is a very tall person and I am not. And um, I constantly get tucked, especially <laughs> in large crowds. Yeah. Uh, so I just have to let people know that it's a very comforting feeling to get tucked behind. It's like, oh, I don't know what's happening up there, but I'm safe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so my quote was, I am a criminal mastermind. I'm here to take down this regime. I love the return of Cress's coping mechanism. I love that we as the reader are like, oh, she's not perfect all of a sudden. Girl has still got problems. Like, she still has trauma. She might need a therapist. They all probably do. Mm-hmm. Pretty much every character in every young adult book ever needs a therapist. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I love this, um, like, callback. And then I also love that she's calling herself a criminal mastermind when we all know that's Thornton's thing. Well, and his response to that is to grin at her and be like, hey, that's my line. Yes. It's and it's perfect. so cute. It's such a beautiful, cute moment. I, I love everything about these chapters. <laughs> uh, same. <laughs> okay. So chapter 71, we're still in Kress's perspective. And while Thorin is getting macked on by this lunar girl, she decides to hide because she doesn't want them to know that she's a shell. Smart. Smart exactly. girl. Yeah. Not letting her emotions get the best of her. Can't say that I would be as 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 good at that. So very smart, very impressive. Thorne says, I think I'm in love with you. Ugh. In her position, I would like, ugh. I don't know, vomit, cry, punch the wall, something. And and that's kind of her reaction, like she's says she's physically in pain hearing him say that. Like it's like she gets stabbed. And then again, there's this exasperation of like, how is it possible that she was the only girl in the galaxy he didn't try to kiss and woo and flirt with? Right. 
And it's like you were, that's why I said like the way you explained that earlier with the performativeness was just brilliant. And, and when we find ourselves in this position, I want to ask multiple things. Did the lunar girl force him to kiss her? Because she does have that ability to make his body do things. Did she manipulate him to kiss her by looking like Cress and acting like Cress? Because we saw that that was very capable between the concept of like Everett and Lavana's marriage and relationship. Mm-hmm. Or was it a combination of all? Because why think, did they kiss is the, th- is the question. I think based on what he describes later in the next chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, where he tells her, she looked like you, I thought I was kissing you. I feel like she initiated the kiss, but because he thought it was Cress in that moment and it was something that he wanted, he gave himself over to it. Mm-hmm. I like that, gave himself over to it. Yeah. I think it's a, I think that it's easy to manipulate someone's emotions in that way. And then, of course, this after kissing her for the first time, when his emotions are that high and his adrenaline is that high, like, I could see how that would, like, just pull itself out of you. And I feel like... like you don't mean to say that you're in love with someone, but, like, it just... It's like an exhale. I feel like a lot of... A lot of the lunar glamour is, like, a very passive manipulation. Mm-hmm. In that you are manipulating what somebody sees, but it's also, I think, kind of like a lowering of inhibitions in a way. Mm. Because for me, what marks this moment is that Thorne completely lets his guard down. Mm-hmm. And he's usually so guarded around Cress because he is terrified of hurting her and taking advantage of her in a way that is unfair, which I love. And we're going to talk about that more in the next chapter because it's my favorite thing about their relationship. And so I think for him to to come out and say this, like, I think I'm in love with you, I think there has to be some greater manipulation happening, even if it's just the, like, coaxing him into letting down those inhibitions. Because normally I don't think this is something he would tell Cress, because he right. wouldn't feel like he was allowed to. Right. I also wonder if the situation had played out differently, which we'll talk about in the next chapter, if he still would have said that or not. But I mm-hmm. guess we'll, we'll never know. So the most important moment of this is that Cress realizes the kiss on the rooftop did not mean as much to him as it did to her. I want to call bullshit. Oh, Absolutely. Again, it's like you were saying earlier that she doesn't pay attention. She doesn't, she doesn't see it, yeah. When they talk about that kiss, his reactions, it meant, it meant more to him than any kiss he's ever experienced in his whole life. And that was the start of why he was terrified of the entire concept. Because, because it meant more to him than anything else. Yeah. It scared him, I think. Yep. Like, that after years of performing in this expected way that he could be caught off guard by feeling this way for her. And I think because I truly believe that Thorne is deep down at heart, a genuinely good person, Mm -hmm. regardless of his outward actions. I think he is so scared of being that person who 
takes advantage of a power imbalance and takes advantage of her and her innocence. And he doesn't want to do that because she's worth more than that to him. I think that, I think you're very right about that. (laughs) Um, But I also want to say that I think Thorne might even be a little protective of himself. Yeah. In the years that he's been, you know, with however many women he's made out with or whatever, he has not been the one who's gotten hurt. But in this scenario, if she rejected him, he could get hurt. So I do think there's a small part of him that worries about his own self-preservation, which I think is 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 valid. Everyone has a sense of self-preservation, whether it's high or low in any circumstance. So um, I think it's valid of him to have that concern. But I do think that part of the reason he's guarded is because he knows if he hurts her, it's going to hurt him. And because I think he has a very low sense of his own self-worth. And mm-hmm. I think that he, Cress has not been good at hiding how she feels about him from literally the second that she met him. Yeah. But he has always known that the version of Carswell Thorne that she's in love with is not who he is. And that it is this, this hero that she's kind of built up in her mind and he is more like that version than he believes himself to be Mm -hmm. um but i think part of the reason why he kind of is holding himself apart a little bit is because he doesn't think that she sees the real him and he thinks in his head that when she realizes that she's not seeing and loving the real version of him it's going to hurt her, and then in turn, her hurt is going to hurt him. Yeah. That he couldn't live up to that better version. It kind of reminds version. me of when she's telling him all these things about him that made him brave and heroic and amazing. And he's like, okay, well, let me explain to you what really happened in all those situations mm-hmm. so that you understand I'm not the good guy here. And afterwards, she thinks about all the things he's done since she met him. Just since she met him and everything that he's done that's been brave and heroic and kind and selfless. But he's so caught up in trying to not be who she thinks he is that he doesn't realize she's already seen the real him. And she still finds him to be that way. And I think that this is one of those moments where it's like if people would just use words. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And talk to each other and communicate the book would be shorter, of course, but, like, all of this could be avoided. Well, there's a there's a concept in, in educational psychology um, that I don't remember the name for anymore because it's been a decade and a half since I took an educational psychology class. But it's this idea that failing because you actively didn't try is better than trying and failing. And I think hmm. that's something that, that Thorne falls into. And it's, yeah. a, it's a flawed belief, but it is very much yeah. like a, a self-protective thing. And I think that's what Thorne is falling into is he's like, it's easier to say that I'm not a hero and I don't want to be a hero and to not be heroic because of that than to try to live up to this person that she thinks I am and fall short of it. Like that that would be worse somehow than not trying at all. I think that that's um, 
I think I would be very interested to learn more about that because there's definitely been times in my life where I'm like, if I just don't want to bother, I can't, I can't get rejected if I don't try, but it's like, you also can't yeah. succeed if you don't try. And that's exactly. the whole, and that's, the whole predicament. That's the hill to get over. But it, it yeah. back when I was back when I was going to become a, an elementary school teacher for a very brief period of time in my life, um, before I realized that that was not a good career move for me. Um, I took an educational psychology class and you know, that was one of the things that we talked about is like sometimes when you have a kid and you look at that kid and go, oh, they're not trying, they don't care. It's actually the opposite. It's actually because they care so much Yeah. that not trying is a better option in their brain than trying and failing. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I get a lot of that with Thorne. describes him. Yeah. Well, and especially, um, especially in these chapters and in some chapters later, <laughs> But I can think of several instances where this has been, uh, I can think of several examples of this supported within the text. That's what I'm trying to say. So after that, it turns out Thorne was manipulated because he can't fight the glamour. So we have a question from patrons on Patreon. The woman pretends to be crest, but only Thorne sees. Do we think the glamour has to be person specific or... Could it be manipulated to where someone could just say, I'm the one you love, and their bioelectricity is manipulated? So this question is, did the girl see Cress, see Thorne look at Cress, and go, I need to look like Cress to manipulate him? Or did the girl go, I want him to think that I'm whoever it is that he's in love with, and that's what he sees? I'm inclined towards the first. Same. But mostly because I think that falls in line with the kind of, like, mischievous manipulation that we see from her. If that makes sense. Where she's like, oh, you're so sweet. You know, you've wanted this for a long time. Like, I'm going to find you later. Like, that kind of stuff. To me, that, that bit that she says falls more in line with... She saw him look at her and decided, I'm going to have some fun with this guy. Three, I also want to point out, because I did I, I did take some time to really consider this. There was a couple of scenes in Cinder, or not Cinder, a couple of scenes in Cress and a couple of scenes in Winter and in Ferris, where it's been explained that it's easier to glamour yourself into looking like someone you recognize. Mm-hmm. So to me... You know, like there was a scene in Ferris where Lavana wanted to get a good look at a, a dress that she was going to wear so she could see exactly how to manipulate it around her, her scars and her skin tone and her gloves and her hair and all of that stuff. There's a scene where Cinder um, is approaching Audrey at the apartment and she takes on the look of someone she's already seen at the palace because that's it's easier for her to glamour herself to look like someone or something that she's familiar with. So I think that it's Thorn. I think the woman made a connection. She was observant and she saw that Thorne looked at Cress in a certain way and she she pounced on the idea. Um, I genuinely don't know if you could just be like, I look like the person you love and then they'll think that. I don't think it's like a hypnotizing thing, if that makes sense. I think that, I think that you could, but that it would not be as strong of a glamour. Ooh, good point. I think the more abstract... You're going with your manipulation, the harder it's going to be to, like, maintain. Yeah. 
is kind of my interpretation. Yeah, I think you're right about that. So Thorne stops kissing the lady and goes over to Cress, and he's super confused because he doesn't understand why she's yelling at him. <sighs> so as it turns out, basically this is what happens. They fight, somebody hears them and is like, hey, go to the coronation. And they're like, oh yeah, sure, we were totally just on our way there. Um, but instead, they sneak into a room to hide, okay? And then they, it's a little atrium, and they kind of get into a spat of some kind, I guess is what you want to call it, because Kress lets him have it. Oh, she, yeah. Oh, she spits everything out. Everything. The fact that she feels like she's an idiot every time she, like, swoons over everything he does or says. The fact that he flirts with everyone who walks around the planet except for her. The fact that he would just randomly kiss some girl at a party right in front of her and not even think twice about it. And then, of course, he's like, I'm in love with you. Like, she just goes off. Yeah, and I love that in the beginning of this, he like he's trying to ha get their banter back. Like he's trying to yeah. chase her. He's like, "Oh, so you're jealous, huh?" And it's like, ah, "No, we're not doing that. I'm not. I'm not doing that with you." And he tries <laughs> to to make the the good point to remind Cress mm -hmm. of because I feel like Cress does lose sight of the fact that the people around her can be manipulated in a way that she can't, and she can't, and that yeah. that's not their fault. Yeah. Especially because we're told over and over and over again in this series how easy it is to manipulate Earthens and that they cannot mm -hmm. do anything to fight against it. So it is not Thorne's fault that he got manipulated in this way. But she does have a decent point to make about how he he does, you know, flirt with everyone around him and doesn't see how that hurts her. Mm-hmm. How it singles her out. Yeah. Yeah. So... After their little spat, Cress is like, I'm done. I don't want to talk about this anymore. I don't want to think about this anymore. We have a mission to get back to. I'm just done. And Thorne is like, I'm done too. And then they finally kiss. Just like oh. our little pictures. And so, so many other pictures. If you are, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, I could live in this moment. Please do. Google fan art, Cress and Thorne. You don't even have to say, like, butterfly or anything. Just Google fan art, Crescent It'll come Thorn. Up. It'll come and up. And just scroll through dozens and dozens and dozens of fan art of the two of them in this particular scene. I think it's by far the most fan art-inspired scene from the entire series. No couple gets this much, like, screen time. Like, listen. Listen. Kai and Cinder <laughs> have my heart. They are my OTP from this series. But Cress and Thorn are close second. And Kai and Cinder have some good romantic moments, but nothing like this. Right. The passion. Like, this is knock you off your feet. Literally. Like, it's so, like, just the, the misconnect, the miscommunication the like the frustrating attempt to fix things with words and it doesn't work until finally he's like okay I can't talk my way out of this there's only one way I can show her why I don't treat her the same as I treat everybody else yeah and that's what the kiss is 
I think we could easily compare it to the other kisses, right? Like in this scene, we have passion that's sort of fueling the anticipation of the kiss. With Cinder and Kai's first kiss, it was really sweet and tender. And, you know, he was like, are you manipulating me right now? No. And then they kiss. Wolf and Scarlet, it's this strange, like, we didn't die, let's make out on the train thing. Mm-hmm. And then Winter and Jason, it was like, well, we're about to, I'm about to murder you. So, you know, this is like one of the, this is just a passion. This is just a moment where passion gets away from you. And I, I love every single second of it. It lives rent-free in my mind all the time. Even though Wolflet is my... is They're not my original true pairing. They're really not. My mm-hmm. original true pairing was Cresswell. But rereading this series, oh my god. The level of devotion the two of them have for each other, I just can't. I They have to be my my loves. I they're, If I have to pick a favorite, it's them. But the scene ends with Cress saying like, Yes, I'm glad you kissed me. It's all I've ever wanted, but I I never wanted to be just another girl to you. And instead of telling her you're not another girl, he tells her, well, the glamoured lunar made herself look like you. And so just, that's his way of saying... Yeah, the vulnerability in this moment, I think, is so important because he could have said like, oh, no, you'll never be just another girl. And it wouldn't have rung true again because of this performative flirting that he does because it's been so built up into his persona, both by him and by everybody around him. Mm -hmm. And so the right move here in this conversation is to be vulnerable and tell the truth in that moment and be like, no, I did that with this girl because I thought I was talking to you and because I thought I was kissing you. And then she points out, well, but you told her that you loved her. And he has that moment of panic, like, uh, I love the idea of him, like, oh, scratching the back of his neck and, like, stretching and, like, yeah, I might have said that. Because, like... Um, But before they can even, like, deal with that, the door opens. So he kind of gets a... He kind of gets a little bit of a reprieve. Right. Slightly. And I I think... Oh, no. And I don't think this moment is because he wants to deny it or because it's not true in any way. I think it's because, like... Right, I think it's just awkward. It's just awkward because, like if he's going to make that confession, he wants it to be like deliberate and thought out and his idea. And instead he was kind of like manipulated into saying it. And now she's like, but wait a minute, such and such. Like he, he wants to be in better control of, of that confession. And he can't be in this moment because of what And you know why he wants that is because he knows how important those words are to her. But for the first time, those words are important to him. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So let's talk about song choices. I'm desperate to talk about yours. <laughs> so mine, this is definitely one where it's like, please don't go read the lyrics to this song because... Well, actually, this is my grandparents' wedding song. I've okay. sang it very... Yeah. I've sang it several times. So when I saw the title, my heart like fluttered a little bit. Yeah. So this is from an older <laughs> musical called Pal Joey. And um, the song title I picked is Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered. Um, this song was made famous by Ella Fitzgerald. She has a cover of it. Um, that's very, very well known. And I just think that it is a, it's a love song from Broadway. 
but I think the title is so perfectly capturing every beat of this chapter because you have bewitched obviously and then you have bothered from Cress and then you have bewildered from Thorn as they try to work from both of them yeah See, the cover I'm most familiar with is Frank Sinatra. Yes, Frank Sinatra also did it. There's a beautiful cover by by Frank Sinatra, and that's the version that that I've performed. But, yeah, I love it because that's that's my my grandparents. That's, like, one of their songs. That's really sweet. One of their songs. So, um, yeah, that made me really happy when I saw it. And I hope everybody votes for it. I already voted for it (laughs) because I get to do that. So uh, my choice was Kiss Me Slowly by a band called Parachute. First of all, this is one of their best songs. I know I picked a song from them a couple weeks ago called She Is Love. They do a very good job of writing love stories that are more like love letters. So, I'm sorry. They do a good job of writing love songs that are more like love letters to the person they're talking about or to. They're not just like we fell in love. You know, like a lot of love songs, especially the like if you type in love song on your on your Pandora or Spotify, it's going to be very repetitive, right? Mm-hmm. This one I like because it sort of reflects exactly what it's like to be in that moment where you're about to kiss and it's all you've ever wanted and it's all you've ever been waiting for. And it's that one, it captures that one second, that one second between when you realize what is about to happen before it actually happens. And I think there's something really beautiful about that, that you could, that that there's a way to explain that one second, because sometimes that one second can be a very long moment in your mind, even if it's not a long moment in time, you know, Mm -hmm. am I explaining that well? Yeah. Yeah. I get that. Hold my breath as you're moving in, taste your lips and feel your skin. When the time comes, don't run. Just kiss me. Yeah. So that's good. perfect. Okay, uh, chapter quotes. <laughs> chapter quotes. So I already talked a little bit about mine, um, but the one I chose was, all right, he said, finally, I don't want to talk about it either. And it's that moment right before he goes in for the kiss when they've just been disconnecting and she's been like spilling out all of these things that she's kind of kept to herself. And she has this big speech that she gives about like, this is what you meant in the desert, isn't it? That I was too naive and romantic and, and you didn't, you know, want to take advantage of me. And he's like, well, I didn't want to hurt you. And she's like, no, I did this to myself. And she's like beating herself up for having these expectations. And mm-hmm. he doesn't have any good way to communicate to her that her expectations are not misplaced, that she will believe. It's one of those moments where it's like, you can say words at somebody and they're true, but they're not going to penetrate the way that an action will. Yeah. And I think he finally reaches that point where he has tried to talk this out. Because, like, okay, as romantic as it is, realistically, you shouldn't just, like, grab a person and kiss them without consent. <laughs> right. However, in this scene... I feel like he has tried so hard to communicate the truth and the reality and she's just not in a place where she can hear it. And so that's why we have this action. It's kind of desperate. It's kind of like, I don't know what else to do. Yeah. Don't um, judge me too harshly, but I kissed my husband without consent. 
you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it, it becomes yeah. a complicated discussion very quickly. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we we had we were friends for a really long time. I dated one of his friends, and even though it had been years since we broke up, there's that unspoken rule, mm-hmm. right, that you don't date your friends' exes. And so we were having this ridiculously long conversation about why we couldn't do anything, and we couldn't date, and we could we needed to stop flirting and hanging out so much. And I was I like. I the conversation had finally ended we were just sitting there and I was like he's gonna leave he's gonna leave my apartment and our friendship is gonna be ruined because we had this big fight and I was like you know what my friendship was ruined anyways so I I told him to close his eyes and I said if you really want to leave you can leave or you can close your eyes and he closed his eyes and I kissed him and for that I feel like and there was enough unspoken like understanding of of (laughs) what moment was coming right um but yeah so like so that's kind of that's why i picked this quote um is because just like that that frustration from him like i don't want to talk about it either he does want to talk about it he just doesn't know how and in this moment she's not she's not in a place where she can talk about it right so yeah, and I'm not sure he's ready to have that talk. No, especially not... He wasn't planning this, on it. Especially not in this context. Like, there is so much going yeah. on right now. When you take a step back and you think about, like, the larger reality of where yeah. they are and what they're doing. Like, the fact that we got so sidetracked. Yeah. But it's like, oh, yeah, we're infiltrating the palace. And if we're discovered, we will be executed in a horribly painful way. And all of our friends will also be in horrible trouble. But the future of the entire world depends on us doing this task. Let's get into an argument about the I love you conversation. It's like a there's a scene in the last Harry Potter book, not movie for listeners who have no idea what I'm about to say, um, where Ron and Hermione finally kiss for the first time. And they get carried away, and Harry's like, oi, there's a war going on? There's a war going on. Is this, before that, he had... <laughs> is this the time? Yeah, his first one is like, um, is this, is this the time? And then when that doesn't do anything, then he's like, there's a war going on. Yeah, and then Ron says, if not now, when? Yeah, it's We're like... We're about to die. That's the point. It's now or yeah. never. And I kind of yeah. feel like we have the same sort of situation with this, like, if it's not going to... If they're not going to do this now, when are they going to do it? Right. So my quote was, she shut her eyes and took a deep breath. She was not angry. She was not hurt. She was not heartbroken. I think one of the reasons Cress is a very popular character is because she's so relatable. Mm -hmm. You guys, how many times have we told ourselves we're not, we can't be hurt right now. We can't deal with it. We just can't. I I don't know if I've been in this position where I'm like, okay, I don't care. I don't care that he's not, I don't care that he's kissing another girl and not me. And I don't care that he's in love with her and not me. And I don't think I've been in that position, but I've definitely had this level of anxiety and refusal to believe the truth and denial. Um, and I've definitely had moments where I'm like telling myself, okay, don't be, don't be mad. Don't be hurt. Don't be upset. Like, this is one of those situations that's out of your hands. Um, I just really like the relatability of it. I like the moment that leads up to this moment where Crest says something, uh, where Thorne says, you know, I know you're upset, but could you pretend not to be? 
<laughs> and then she like she has a centering moment and then she opens her eyes and smiles at him and he's like, That's uncanny. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's one of those like, I know I just asked you to do that, but man, it's weird that you can. Right? He's like, I didn't actually expect you to do that. Okay. Cool. I'm now terrified. That is actually kind of terrifying. Yeah. For people could that you could shut your emotions that way. I don't know if I'm capable of that. Oh, I'm definitely not. Yeah, I'm not capable. I'm not very good at it. I'm trying to get better at it. I'm trying to distance myself from people and keep parts of myself, you know, protected. Um, Keeping parts of me that belong to me to me and not giving them to other people. These days, more authors are including mental health content in their books. But do you ever wonder how accurate some of this stuff is? Or do you ever read something where you know the author just gets it? I'm Elise and I'm Priscilla and we are Novel Feelings, a podcast where we discuss mental health issues in fiction novels. We are psychologists and book lovers and we have a lot of opinions. So look for Novel Feelings wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to your show. Okay so last chapter 72 we're in Cress's perspective. And we don't get to know about the I love you because what happens? Well, guards come in. They're clearing the space because it's time for the coronation. It's coronation day. (laughs) So I get frustrated with this scene. Yeah. Yeah. Crest can't. They leave and they're in the hallway and Crest literally can't stop laughing to save her life. And then Thorne is like, just act natural. And she's like, (laughs) ha ha. And it just makes her laugh even more. And I'm like, keep it together, girl. We're so close. <laughs> my favorite, my favorite moment from this is is Thorn going, um, Cress, you're adorable, but I need you to focus. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that that even in this like really high stakes situation, he is just delighted by her. I know. It's so cute. And like, yes, he realizes the gravity of the situation, but that's the whole like you're so you're so cute, but like we we have to focus. Ah, I love it. So the guards yell at them to stop and they run cuz that's what you're supposed to do when someone tells you to stop. Um basically they run away and Thorn decides to pull an Iko. He's going to distract the guards. So that Cress can get out of there. He's sacrificing himself to save Cress, which of course is very beautiful and romantic and brave and heroic and whatever. My favorite part is when he says he promises he's going to find her later. He's like, look, I know you're upset that we're getting separated, but it's not forever. I'm going to find you. Like this isn't, I'm not leaving you forever. I'm going to find you. They're not going to hurt me. I just, it's just so sweet that he's still worrying about her feelings in that moment. Oh, and the fact that he parts with, you know, be heroic. I know. Like, it's so cute. Oh. Because <sighs> she's always wanted that, right? Yeah. Also, this is such a mood. Her looking at the gun, like, ooh, this is uncomfortable. Same yeah, girl. Same, same. Same. Hate those things. They really freak me out. The very concept of holding something with that much power in my hand is yeah. an amount of anxiety I could not deal with. No. Like, so a group of my friends and I a couple months ago went axe throwing because there's a place near us where you can go axe throwing. And that's popular for, I will never understand why, but I know it's popular. Well, and, and it was my friends who wanted to go and I was like, oh, okay, sure. And then we got there 
and I turned out to be really good at it. That does not surprise me. I played softball for eight years. And no, uh, I'm not surprised even less. <laughs> it's it's a lot of the same like muscle memory. Right. Um, but like there's something cathartic about it, about just like <laughs> chucking an axe at a wall. Um but I would never go to a shooting range. Like if my friends wanted to go to a shooting range and shoot guns. Like I would not would not do that. My mom does it and I'm like I will say, like, speaking of cathartic experiences in that way that are strange, there's a TV show called Pretty Little Liars, and there's an episode where Hannah goes through a breakup, and she's all sad, and she's all mad, and her mom takes her to a place called Plates. And it's a place you go, and you give them, like, $20, and they give you a stack of plates, and you just wreck them. You throw them on the floor, you throw them at the wall, you break them over your leg, like, you just do whatever you want to those plates until you feel better. And I'm always like, I should open a place like that. They have... That sounds like the best part. Like, that sounds like exactly what you want to do when you're angry. They have uh, places like that close by to me called Rage Rooms. There we go. Where, like, they put, like, a bunch of old electronic equipment, like, breakable stuff, and they give you, you know, safety goggles and, like, a baseball bat. And you just, like, you go to town. (laughs) And, and there's, there's something appealing in that sometimes, like for sure. Right? It's like, I want to have a, it's like throwing a hissy fit. Like, I want to do that. Like yeah. they do in movies and, and just TV like shows. get the emotions out, but yeah. don't give me a gun. Like is what I'm saying. You can give me a no, baseball bat. No, you can give me an no. ax. I don't want a Mace. gun. Um, uh, my family, my parents were really big fans of MASH, the TV show. Um, mm. and the main character, Hawkeye, is incredibly anti-gun in that show. It's about the Korean War. And there are times when, like, he has to go out into the into the field of combat. He's a medic. And he's always, like, under orders to carry a gun when he has to go out onto the front lines. And he won't. Like, he absolutely refuses. And there are some hilarious scenes where, like, you have Alan Alada, who plays Hawkeye, like, holding this gun with by the by the handle with, like, two fingers... And like, like holding <laughs> like it away the way from him, and like, hold a raw chicken. yeah, exactly, and like dropping it, and it's like that's how I feel. That's yep. how I feel about guns. Yep. I don't want them. I don't want anything to do with them. Please keep them away from me. I have no. Dis- I've never held a gun, and I never will if I can help it. I've held a fake one on stage. Nope, haven't even done that. I have. I've held a water gun. Yeah, me too. so crest runs to the elevator and listens as thorn is caught and dragged away and then we hear a gunshot and nothing else from thorn that's not ominous not at all no i feel totally safe right now i do like when um he says uh when they're like what are you doing here and he said just kissing my girl i'm like oh my god (laughs) right like (laughs) oh So smooth. Like, Chris, are you listening? <laughs> and and I really like that. I know it is, again, it's performative. It's for the guards. Yeah. But once she has said how much it bothers her that he doesn't flirt with her and make a big deal out of her, like, he immediately starts to. And, and again. you should pay attention from here on out. Yeah. She made it clear that she doesn't like it when he flirts with 
her mm-hmm. or anybody else because she feels like it doesn't mean anything to him. I want, because we're spoiler free, I want everyone to pay attention from here on out and see, does he continue to flirt with everyone else? Yeah. Um, or does that change after this scene and conversation? Yeah. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, so no, but the end of this a... chapter is just heartbreaking. I know. Oh, my gosh. <sighs> so they take Thorn away, and Crest stays hidden, and they're going to put him in a holding cell. That's it, you guys. They kiss, and it's like, yay! And, and then, then it all falls apart. by the thaumaturges, and they're like, that's an accomplice of Cinder! It all falls Crest apart. just, like, hiding. Poor baby girl. So we do have a comment from Patreon that I hope I read in the right words because it's on a Discord chat. Uh-huh. So I, I hope I give this the right like level of enthusiasm. I'm going to try to based on my own emotions and interpretation and the person that I know who wrote this. <laughs> the mic literally so like cut out on my end with my headphones oh. with with the intensity of that excited scream that you just gave oh <laughs> so well done thank you i love these chapters it's such a roller coaster of emotions Cresswell vibes wise that's one word you guys <laughs> i live for it at first it's like all happy and smooth with thorn appreciating crest in a dress and my otp getting paired together for a secret mission insert hard eyes then, it's a quick heart plummet when the Lunars trick Thorn into making out with them and it destroys Cress. Side note, I really like how we're in Cress's perspective, especially because she's a shell and sees through everyone's glamour. But then, Thorn finally wholeheartedly kisses Cress. I love how he's like, I'm not good with at words, but I can do this. <laughs> I love that. It's such a flood of emotions and dreams come true. I was so proud of Thorn for not only recognizing Crescent's jealousy and devastation, but addressing it as well. So much better than his behavior in Africa with Darla. So true. If I picked a song, it'd probably be a medley between Sparks Fly and Love Story, both by Taylor Swift. I like when people say by Taylor Swift as if I, as if we don't know who sings Love Story. Like, <laughs> maybe, maybe not everybody does. Ah, that's fair. Also, but I know my target audience. <laughs> Sarah Burrells has a listeners. song called Love Story, too, I think. so. Does she? That's fair. I don't know about Sparks Fly, though. That's fair. <laughs> so, that is the end of this chapter. I, I just really loved that comment. I had to share it. Um, let's talk about our chapter titles. So, this one, again, was, like, easy for me to pick. Um, I picked a song from South Pacific... This nearly was mine, which is a heartbreaking love song in context of the show. Um, it is a couple that are kind of like star-crossed. Um, they have this beautiful moment um, and this beautiful you know, time that they share together, but they are a couple that are never going to work for a variety of political reasons. And so they have to say goodbye to each other. And the the guy of that couple sings this song called This Nearly Was Mine about what he had and what he lost. And, like, it's just a song that kind of perfectly encapsulates that height of 
it could have been perfect if it had just gone a little bit differently in the end, which I feel like we have with this chapter where like they've had this kiss and they've talked about these things and he's so close to saying, I love you. And then they're interrupted, not just interrupted so that they have to like run away and, and table the discussion for later, but like he's dragged away. He might be shot. He might be dead. She doesn't know. And so she's left with just like, is this all we're ever going to have? Was this mo- one moment and these things, you know, left unresolved. Right. Um, and, uh, the, the song opens with one dream in my heart, one love to be living for, one life to be living for, this nearly was mine. And it ends with now, now I'm alone, still dreaming of paradise, still saying that paradise once nearly was mine. And it's just, it's gorgeous, beautiful, heartbreaking song. Like this chapter. <laughs> like this chapter, man. Like this chapter. Um, so I picked Lavender Haze by Taylor Swift. I love that these two are in a haze when it happens. I think that, I think that in this scene, they're both completely in that moment when they're kissing each other. And when the guards pop in, it like cuts through the fog and haze of this beautiful moment and just ruins it for them. But also for us, the reader who is really important. Right. Huh. And this is classic, this is classic Marissa. (laughs) Because, like, she's giving you so many beautiful things. And then she leaves you on this cliffhanger. And then you're going to turn the page. And it's not going to be Cress and Thorn anymore. No, we're not going to see them for, like, five chapters. We are jumping to somebody else entirely. Yeah, And it's going to be ages before you find out what happens to Thorn. Like, not to spoil anything, but, like, you should be anticipating that at this point. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm with you on that one. <laughs> there are a couple of lines that I really like here. All this blink is new to me. It's new for both of them. Cress is not familiar with relationships at all, and Thorne has never been in love. At all. Even not even a little bit. Like this is the first time he's ever really cared about the person he's kissed. Um, so that's probably the one that I I love the most. Um, but I also like there's a the line that um, they're bringing up my history, but you aren't even listening. We talk a lot about Thorne's history and the fact that he has experience and that he does have past relationships to to sort of dwell on. And that Cress is sort of blinded by how by by the very concept of him having any kind of relationship past, present or future. Um, and I I think that. I think that Thorne disregards all of those relationships so much because of how he feels for Cress, because he knows none of it was real. Mm-hmm. And he didn't realize that until feeling what it was like to, to feel the real moment. I do also want to take this moment to just point out a reminder for everybody that Thorne is 20. <laughs> yes. Like, it's easy to get caught up in this conversation and to, like, act like he's been around for so long having all of these wild right, relationships right. But he's only but 20 he, years old he's 20 he's 20 years old yeah the world in and this he spent story like a year and a half in solitary confinement right. so he's really like 18 and a half the world in this story is being saved by a group of teenagers and i really need us to not lose sight of that Oh my gosh. Because the I need oldest. The world to be saved by like a grown. I need Torin. Right, Where's exactly. Torin's like, story? let's put Torin. Because like the oldest of our eight is Jason, 
who I think is no, only Wolf. is is Wolf older than Jason. Wolf is twenty three. Yeah, so twenty three. And Scarlet's eighteen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they're not old. Cinder is sixteen. I just need every once in a while. I just have to remind <sighs> myself of that reality. Like, I have students that are sixteen, and the thought of them <laughs> having to save the world is terrifying. a little terrifying. Right. Right. So, I was t- when I was 23, I was getting married, and everyone was saying I was too young to get married. <laughs> but not too young to save the world, as long as it's a young adult mo- book. <laughs> right, exactly. As long as it's a young adult dystopia. Yeah. So let's talk about our favorite quotes. Uh, this is the one, like, the one moment of levity for me in the middle of this horrible chapter, um, is when he's... They're being chased by the guards, and he's telling her the plan, like, I'm going to draw them off, you go hide. And she says, no, uh, you can't leave me, not again, I can't do this without you. And he could give, like, a super romantic response here. He could, like, gently touch her face and tell her, like, you're stronger than you think you are, and it's all going to be okay, and, like, make all these kind of false flowery promises. But instead, in very classic Thorn fashion, he goes... Sure you can. It won't be as much fun, but you'll figure it out. And I feel like that's exactly what she needs to hear in this moment. It's like just that that's casual. Just reason why they're such a good match. Yeah, just that casual confidence. Like, I can't do this. Yes, you can. Like it's easy. And and like I love that know, it like won't be as so much fun. In her. Yeah, it won't yeah. be as much fun. You know, without me. Like, of course you want me there. Like, I'm the life of the party. But like, you're perfectly capable of doing it on your own. I just absolutely love that response from him, and it makes me laugh every time. I love it. So mine was, he'd said that he loved her at least in a sense. Y'all, Crest didn't forget about that moment. Mm-mm. We're coming back Guards to that. Guards walked in. Guards walked in. She. Thorin got, he ran away, got captured, got shot. She's got a gun in her hand. She's got to be heroic, but she is not forgetting about that. I love that. He said he loved her innocence. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, he didn't tell so. me exactly, but he did tell, like, another girl that he thought was me. And that's kind of the same thing. It's so thing. convoluted when you say it like that, though, right? Like, yeah. well, he said he loved you. Yeah. Well, okay. He said it to this lunar girl who kind of sort of looked like me that he was kissing, but he was technically manipulated because he didn't know that she wasn't me. And so that's why he said that he loved her. But then maybe he took it back. And then it's like, oh, my goodness, this is who big circle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the bonus word hair appeared six times. There were two Easter eggs. Uh, next time we are going to cover winter chapters 73 and 74 but before that i'm going to have a bonus episode i asked patreon i asked instagram the votes were almost unanimous it was amazing i'm going to do a bonus episode after i finish going to taylor swift's concert because i'm going to taylor swift's concert for the first time in my life that was exciting. This is like a lifelong dream. You have no <laughs> idea. I've been trying to get tickets to every concert since I was like 18 years old. So this is like right up there with getting my master's degree in terms of accomplishments. <laughs> and my two friends are coming and I'm making friendship bracelets so I can be a part of that trend. Like I'm just super excited. So we're going to do an episode about that. Well, I'm very happy for you and I hope that you have Thanks. just the best time. Thank you. 
Do you want to tell anyone where they can find you on social media? Absolutely. So I am from of Slippers and Spindles. Um, I will take a moment in case you have not heard the news. Um, Drew did lose his battle with cancer in February. And so um, obviously the podcast is kind of wrapped up at this point. Uh, the future is kind of nebulous and uncertain. He did give me permission to continue it with somebody else in the future at some point, but I have no idea when that would happen or what it would look like. Um, but it was really important to him that we keep all of our episode log up and available. So you can still find us wherever you listen to podcasts and all 106 of the episodes that we recorded are available to listen to and will continue to be available. And I hope that you keep listening to us and um, finding joy in what we put into the world. And yeah, we miss him. I miss him a lot. Um, and I'm not going to dwell on it too much because I'll get super emotional and we're not going to end this wonderful episode with me crying. So, but you can find us there. We also have a Facebook page where people are pretty active um, from our community. And you can find me on Instagram at Cassie Directs. And um, I also have another podcast that I'm part of. If you are at all interested in me talking about more theater stuff, my friend Ryan and I have a podcast called By the Ghost Light, um, where we post every two weeks about uh, Broadway and theater world news and how they relate to small town theater life. And we talk a lot about the theater projects that we're doing. So if that's something that is at all interesting to you, um, you can find us also wherever you listen to podcasts at By the Ghost Light. I haven't listened to that one. I should give it a try. I'm not big in theater, to be honest with you, other than watching musicals. But and that's I'm so good. curious. Like, that's fine. Ryan definitely knows more about the industry than I do. So it's mm -hmm. always kind of interesting to talk, but we also just talk a lot about like the process of creating theater and um, our jobs and our activities. And right now we have a running bit, which is what the post-its on the wall behind me are. We have a running bit because the theater company that I work for has approved our next season of shows, but we haven't announced them yet. And so Ryan's been trying to guess what our season is every episode and of course like he's not seriously trying to guess he's coming up with the most ridiculous answers that he possibly can which is very funny i think of course so i love it um so you can uh follow the <clears throat> you can follow the prince kai fan pod everywhere on instagram how do you do podcasts uh, you can rate review and subscribe to episodes um Wherever you get your podcasts, the links for Cassie and our featured fan artists are in the show notes. And you can check out Patreon for a chance to be a Cassie. I think you did like an, an, an auto-replace on the word guest because I saw that a couple times. For a chance to be a Cassie. I have a template that I use and I don't always remember to change every, every part of it. <laughs> uh, listen, it's hard to be a Cassie. It's not easy. But you too can can achieve it if you work hard enough. If you shoot for the star, if you shoot for the moon, you'll at least ain't land in the stars or something like something that. Like I that. don't know how. I don't know how it goes. Um, but 
think that is how I do a podcast. So thank you very much for coming. I, I'm always delighted to talk to you. I'm always delighted to be here. <laughs> genuinely. I feel like every time I, I record with you, I learn several things that I'm like, okay, that's a word I didn't know. Like I looked up <laughs> nebulous while you were talking. Oh, like, yeah, <laughs> nebulous. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uncertain, I love that. Hazy. I'm going to use that word. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but thank you for being here. And listeners, thank you for, for downloading this episode. Uh, keep reading, keep listening. And until next time, don't get glamored. Bye. Bye. This podcast is hosted and produced by Bethany Finger. And today's special guest was Cassie from Of Slippers and Spindles podcast. The chapters discussed today are from Winter by Marissa Meyer. The intro outro music was composed by Emma Pavo. And the logo art was created by Sunlit Tangles on Instagram. Thank you for listening.